Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 73rd episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Legal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the Journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to Lethal Minds Journal dot substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or substack analyze educate.substack.com you could find all those links in the show notes below we appreciate all the support you guys send our way and with that being said we'll head into the news Okay, so this is the first episode that we have recorded since the start of the new year. So starting off the year, you guys have helped us reach over 32,000 downloads and 1,800 followers on Spotify alone. So thank you very much for all your support. Started off here with Europe and Eurasia looking at Germany. We are learning more about a group of Islamists that were arrested in Germany on Christmas Eve we reported on this two news episodes ago, but at that point, there wasn't a lot of information that was out. Five Islamists were arrested for planning a New Year's Eve attack against the Cologne Cathedral. Uh, BILD claims that the cell belongs to the Islamic State Khorasan province, which is the branch of the Islamic State that mainly operates in Afghanistan and sometimes in surrounding areas. Those suspects include Mohammed Jadrab B, a 30-year-old, Tajikistan National. He is accused of being the group's ring leader whose network expanded to other German states and European nations. The named suspect is also accused of spying on the cathedral while planning an attack against it. He is also tied to a seven-man Tajik terrorist cell that was arrested over the summer in Sarlan, but has since been released, except for him because now he's locked up again. The group of five that was arrested also allegedly planned an attack on the St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, Austria. Looking at the South Caucasus, we have some updated information regarding the Third Karabakh War, which saw the full capture of Nagorno-Karabakh by Azerbaijan and the end of the de facto Republic of Artsakh last year. Armenian authorities claim that the casualty toll for the Artsakh Defense Forces is 223 killed, 244 injured, 20 missing, and 23 captured in fighting that lasted less than 24 hours. The approximate estimate of casualties during the second Karabakh War in 2020 is 3260 killed. Again, that's just from the Artsakh Defense Forces, not the Armenian Forces. Uh, NK Observer on Twitter points out that a contributing factor to the high toll in such a short period of time is the 10-month blockade of Artsakh, which led to shortages of manpower fuel, food, and medicine, which of course ran up to the beginning of the war last year. Now, I do not have the civilian casualty toll from that war. I'm curious, but I haven't really been able to find any concrete numbers. Moving on to Russia on January 3rd, a Russian warplane accidentally dropped munitions on the Russian town of Petrobolovka in Voronezh Oblast. Voronezh Regional Governor Alexander Gusev claims that the explosives were dropped as a, quote, emergency release. The town is about 100 kilometers from the border with Ukraine. Multiple towns and, I'm sorry, multiple homes and other buildings were destroyed and four civilians were injured. 
Looking at the Russo-Ukrainian war, the Wall Street Journal is claiming via unnamed sources that the U.S. believes Russia is planning to buy ballistic missiles from Iran. Now, this has been reported for well over a year at this point, so personally, I'll believe it when I see it, when the first Iranian-made missile is shot down over Ukraine. But on that same note, coinciding with U.S. intelligence claims, we have seen Russia using North Korean missiles for the first time, at least one KN-23, which is also called the, excuse me, I don't know how to speak Korean, Hwasong 11 Ga was shot down over Ukraine uh, this past week. That missile somewhat resembles a Russian Iskander M short-range ballistic missile. And also, there were rumors spreading over the week that Russian chief of the general staff, General Valery Garasimov, was killed in a Ukrainian missile strike targeting Crimea. Those rumors are complete bullshit. There is no evidence that Garasimov was even in Crimea over the week. The initial claim came from a single comment on a Ukrainian telegram channel that has since been deleted. And just a tip, if you guys are on Twitter and you follow Visegrad24, don't. They constantly post bullshit. Moving on to the Indo-Pacific region, looking at Taiwan. Over the week, three non-commissioned officers of the Republic of China Air Force, Taiwan is the Republic of China, were arrested and accused of spying on behalf of China, the People's Republic of China, for payment. That case centers around a sergeant at a radar tower that may have been in debt to loan sharks. Authorities say that additionally, a lone non-military female was also arrested. Unfortunately, I can't find any other details from English language sources. If I find something, I'll update you guys, but that's all we have right now. Moving on to Japan, on New Year's Day, Western Japan was hit by a 7.6 magnitude earthquake, at least 12 aftershocks followed, ranging anywhere from 4.6 magnitude to 6.1. At least 110 people are confirmed dead at this point, with another roughly 200 still missing. All of the dead were from the Ishikawa prefecture. Additionally, at least 516 people were injured. One of the hardest hit areas was Wajima City, where the quakes resulted in a fire that destroyed an estimated 200 buildings. Many of the city's structures are made out of traditional wood, so that city is currently seeing a lot of aid flow into it. On the second in Japan, Japan Airlines Flight 516 in Airbus A350 collided with a Japanese Coast Guard plane at Tokyo's Haneda Airport while going down the runway. The pilot of the Coast Guard plane survived, but the other five crew members of that plane did pass away. The plane was on a mission to deliver aid to affected areas by the earthquake. The Japan Airlines Flight caught fire after the collision. Miraculously, all 379 people on board survived and were evacuated and accounted for in just 18 minutes. Looking at the Korean Peninsula on January 4th, residents on the South Korean islands of Yopengyong and Benegyong were ordered by the Republic of Korea Marine Corps to evacuate after the North Korean military began shelling the waters near the two islands with coastal artillery. Neither islands were hit by artillery, with both impact areas being to the north of both islands. North Korea claims the water surrounding both of these islands. Obviously, South Korea claims that to be their territorial waters. Yopengyong was shelled in 2010 by North Korea, an incident which some believe was very close to reigniting the Korean War. After a South Korean live fire exercise, North Korea hit the island with artillery shelling and rockets. South Korea responded in kind. Two Korean Marines and two civilians were killed. 
Others were injured as well. South Korea says that it killed 5 to 10 North Korean soldiers, while the North claims that it took no casualties. Moving on to Central Asia in the Middle East, looking at Iran on the 3rd. Two explosions went off near the cemetery in Kerman, Iran, during a ceremony to mark the fourth anniversary of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force Commander Lieutenant General Qasem Soleimani's assassination. The current casualty toll right now is 84 killed. That was revised down from 103 and at least 141 people injured. The Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack, saying that two of their fighters conducted the attack as suicide bombers. Those fighters were identified as Omar al-Mahawid and Sayyufullah al-Mujahid. The Iranian government claims that ISIS worked on behalf of the United States and Israel, and they have vowed revenge for the bombings. Moving on to Iraq, Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani is forming a committee to facilitate the departure of U.S. and coalition forces from Iraq. That statement from al-Sudani came a day after the death of a militia commander in Baghdad, which I will get into soon. The prime minister says that the committee will include senior leaders of the U.S.-led coalition. The U.S. military currently has 2,500 troops in Iraq. That does not include coalition forces from other countries. The coalition was formed and deployed to Iraq at the request of the government to stop the rapid advance of ISIS in 2014. So it's been about 10 years now. Moving on to the Israel-Hamas war. Reported casualties, Gaza, you have 22,600 killed, 57,910 injured. Israel, you have 1,387 killed, 8,788 injured. Gaza operation casualties, you have 176 killed in action, 938 wounded. In the West Bank, you have 326 killed, 3,456 injured. In Lebanon, you have 176 killed. In Syria, you have 85 killed, and in Egypt, you have nine injured. That gives us a grand total of 24,398 people killed, 70,163 injured. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 77. The vast majority of those 70 were Palestinians that were killed in Gaza. Additionally, four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists have been killed as well. Heavy fighting and clearance operations are still ongoing in the north, with the IDF making major progress over the week. Only a handful of neighborhoods right now in the north do not have an IDF presence. In central Gaza, the IDF has been pushing into the Berej refugee camp, operating in the western half. Another axis from the north is currently pushing south into the camp. In the south, heavy fighting is still ongoing in the city of Kanyunis, that is the second largest city in the Gaza Strip, with much progress being made there as well. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah, as well as other non-state actors in Lebanon, have continued. On the second, an Israeli airstrike in Beirut, Lebanon killed Saleh al-Awuri. Al-Awuri is the second, I'm sorry, he is the highest ranking Hamas official killed so far in the war as the deputy commander of the Politburo, which is the main political decision-making organization of Hamas. Additionally, he was a founding leader of the Izadin al-Qassam Brigade, Hamas's military wing. The U.S. designated him a terrorist in 2015 and put a $5 million bounty on his head at the time. On the third, an Israeli airstrike in the Lebanese city of Nakura killed Hussein Yazbek, a Hezbollah official in charge of the city for the group. Three members of his security detail were also killed. 
and on the 4th, an Israeli airstrike in northern Gaza reportedly killed Mabdou Lolo, the chief of operational staff for Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Now, over 100 refugees are still being held in Gaza. Don't really have an update on that front for you guys, so that's pretty much all we know right now as far as new information goes. Since October 17th, there have been at least 118 drone and rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. The attacks resumed soon after the expiration of the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and have continued pretty steady since then. The Pentagon has confirmed 69 casualties so far. That includes 25 traumatic brain injuries and one critical casualty. The U.S. military has launched eight response strikes. That eighth response came on January 4th when U.S. airstrikes in Baghdad killed Abu Taqwa al-Saidi and Ali Naif Aref. Al-Saidi was the deputy operations commander of Harakat Hezbollah on Ujaba, otherwise known as the 12th Brigade of the Popular Mobilization Forces. This was the second U.S. airstrike against the 12th Brigade since October 7th. There's been one U.S. response for every 14.8 attacks against our forces. During the address announcing the committee to oversee the withdrawal of U.S. troops, Prime Minister al-Sudani made mention of the strike. The agreement establishing the coalition to defeat ISIS upholds the sovereignty of Iraq, which Sudani says was violated by the January 4th strike. The Prime Minister is known for his support among and relationship with Iranian-backed militias of the PMF. Yemen-based Houthi rebels have continued their activity in the region. There have been at least 25 attacks against commercial shipping and allied naval assets in the area since October 19th. Over the week, Houthis tried to attack either a U.S. Navy vessel or commercial shipping using an explosive-laden waterborne drone. That drone detonated within a couple miles from any vessels in the area. This is not the first time that the Houthis have tried this tactic before, despite some Reporting to the contrary, the Houthis actually tried this tactic in 2016 when they hit a Saudi uh, naval vessel. And I can't remember the full details of that, but this tactic has been seen before, to my point. On December 31st, two U.S. Navy helicopters from the USS Gravely and the Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group were fired upon by four Houthi small boats in the area. The helicopters returned fire and destroyed three of the boats, killing 10 Houthi fighters. The helicopters were responding to a distress call from the Maersk Guangzhou, which was hit by an anti-ship ballistic missile in the southern Red Sea. By the time the helicopters arrived, the Houthi boats were attacking the ship after it was already hit by the missile. They were able to get within 20 meters of Guangzhou, but were being held off by a contract security team on board. U.S. Central Command and the Houthis have both confirmed the engagement and the death toll among Houthi fighters. Maersk was one of the first shipping companies to suspend shipping through the Red Sea, followed by another eight of the world's top 10 shipping companies. Maersk then decided to resume operations in the area under the protection of Operation Prosperity Guardian, but on the 31st, they decided to suspend shipping in the Red Sea until further notice after that incident that I just detailed. On just on January 5th, there was a brief hijacking by pirates on the MV Lila Norfolk, a Liberian flagged bulk carrier in the North Arabian Sea. The Indian Navy guided missile destroyer INS Chennai responded to the incident. Indian Marine Commandos, abbreviated as Marcos, boarded the ship and secured its 21 crew members, 15 Indians among them. The hijackers left the ship before the commandos boarded. The hijacking took place about 500 miles east of Somalia, which is too far for small boats. 
This lends to the theory from Sal Mercogliano, otherwise known as what's going on with shipping, that the pirates were operating from a mothership in the area, which may be the MV Ruin, which is a ship that was hijacked by Somali pirates in mid-December. Ruin went dark on its AIS beacon recently, actually last month, but it was recently seen on satellite near the area of the Lyland Norfolk hijacking on Friday. And on the 6th, Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Laboon shot down a UAV launched by the Houthis over international waters in an act of self-defense. This was in the Southern Red Sea. And lastly, according to tracking data from the International Monetary Fund, the amount of commercial shipping through the Suez Canal in 2024, as opposed to 2023, has declined 20 to 25%, which is a significant amount. The largest declines are in container shipping and tankers. The tactics of the Houthi movement and their likely partnership with Somali pirates is working. Keep in mind that the Biden administration delisted the Houthis as a terrorist organization in February 2021 and have not relisted them. Naval forces posture in the region. Thank you to Intel Schizo on Twitter for his infographics. The Israeli Navy has three corvettes near the Sinai Peninsula. Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group is currently en route back to home port in Virginia from the eastern Mediterranean. Its deployment is coming to an end after three extensions. The Bataan Amphibious Readiness Group has left the region. It is regrouping with the USS Mesa Verde in the Mediterranean. There are 11 ships in the Gulf of Aden under the framework of the Combined Maritime Forces. That is the Allied Forces framework that work with U.S. naval assets in the region to counter piracy and things such as that. Iran has two ships in the Red Sea and two in the North Arabian Sea. India has two ships operating in the North Arabian Sea as well. One of those is the Chennai that I just spoke about. The British Royal Navy has four ships near Bahrain. The U.S. Navy has 17 ships in the Persian Gulf and in the Gulf of Oman. Now, lastly, there was some sensational reporting over the week regarding an Iranian naval vessel entering the Red Sea on New Year's Eve in the aftermath of the engagement between U.S. forces and those Houthi vessels that I just talked about. This reporting by multiple outlets and independent pages was completely false. U.S. Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, who is the commander of U.S. Fifth Fleet, confirmed that Iran has had a combat-ready naval presence in the Red Sea for at least three continuous years. Additionally, the vessel that was the subject of these reports entered the Red Sea on November 10th, not New Year's Eve. Iranian deployments to the area usually last 60 to 90 days, at which point that specific ship is replaced with another. And we will take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we are back with the Americas, and we're taking a look at the United States. Got a presidential race update. These are poll averages from 538. Biden's approval rating is at 38. His disapproval is at 55. His disapproval remains the same. His approval is down one point. Trump's favorability is at 42. That remains the same. His unfavorability is at 52. That is down one point. Looking at the Democratic primary, Biden is at 71%. That is up three points. Marion Williamson is at six. And Congressman Dean Phillips is at three. Phillips and Williamson are both down one point. And looking at the Republican primary, 
Trump is at 62 points. That is up one point from last week. DeSantis is at 12, and Nikki Haley is at 11. Both of those remain the same. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court has decided to take up the case regarding Trump being removed from Colorado's 2024 ballot. As you probably already know, the Colorado Supreme Court recently ruled that Trump should be removed from the ballot for inciting insurrection on January 6, 2021. The 14th Amendment contains a clause that bars anyone who has incited or committed insurrection against the U.S. from holding public or military office. Maine has also used this same clause to ban him from that state's ballot. Oral arguments in the U.S. Supreme Court will start on February 8th. Moving on, a U.S. sailor signed to the Japan-based Arleigh Burke-class destroyer USS Ralph Johnson has died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound that was on December 30th. That sailor was Operation Specialist Third Class Romario Clennon from Atlanta, Georgia. Clennon joined the Navy in 2021 in September, and an investigation has been launched into his death. We will be praying for his family. On January 4th, a U.S. Air Force B-1 bomber crashed at Ellsworth Air Force Base in South Dakota. The bomber reportedly suffered an engine fire, and the four crew members were able to safely eject. Moving on, over the week, it was announced that Colonel Dylan Patterson, commander of the Arkansas Air National Guard's 188th Air Wing, has resigned from his post. The reasoning provided was in protest of the Pentagon policy that pays for abortion-related travel. Patterson joined in 2001 and was one of the Air Force's first career drone pilots. Moving on, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was hospitalized over the week. He was hospitalized at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Monday, and actually he is still currently hospitalized, but uh, he was put in the intensive care unit over the week due to complications from an elective procedure. He left the intensive care unit on Friday night. He did not resume his duties until Friday night when he left the intensive care unit. Now, the main issue here is that the Pentagon did not notify actually a lot of people. The story has been updating a lot over the past 24 hours, so they did not notify Congress or the press pool until 5.03 p.m. on Friday after everybody was already off work for the weekend. Now, like I said, the story has been updating a lot over the past 24 hours. So thanks to Politico, we now know that the National Security Council, of which Jake Sullivan is in charge of, was not notified that Secretary of Defense Austin was not performing his duties for multiple days. Uh, they also had no idea he was in the intensive care unit. Again, this is due to complications from an elective procedure. So uh, Jake Sullivan had no idea that the Secretary of Defense was in the hospital in an unscheduled hospital stay, I should say, uh, at the time, which is something he should probably be made aware of. And additionally, a lot of senior DOD officials and top aides weren't aware of this either, which means that for three or four days, uh, the National Security Council, senior DOD officials, Congress, and the American public had no idea that the Secretary of Defense was hospitalized and not performing his duties at a time when our military is involved in so much ongoing chaos around the world. Now, somebody was fulfilling his duties. That is Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. She took over Austin's duties when he was placed in the intensive care unit. Now, it should be noted that Hicks was on vacation in Puerto Rico when she assumed his duties and just decided not to return to Washington, D.C. while serving as acting Secretary of Defense. Apparently, she just felt like she could stay on vacation during that time. Needless to say, this is not a good look, and again, this is coming at a time when U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria have been attacked 
at least 118 times in the last two and a half months. U.S. forces and commercial shipping in the CENTCOM area of responsibility are routinely attacked. And of course, the U.S. is playing major roles in the ongoing Russo-Ukrainian war in the Israel-Hamas war as well. So definitely not a good look. And I would not be surprised if we see even more updates regarding the story come out. And of course, I will keep you guys up to date if and when we do. So keep an eye out for that. Now, this is our last story of the week. We've talked about him a couple times. This is U.S. Senator Bob Menendez. And if you've been listening to the show for at least a few months, you can probably tell that anytime we bring this guy's name up, it's probably not going to be good news. And that is certainly the case this time. So U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, the Democrat from New Jersey, has been hit with even more corruption charges. Now, you may know that this is not the first time Menendez had been indicted with corruption charges by the federal government. He was charged in 2015, but those charges were dropped in 2018. He was indicted again in September of last year for corruption in connection to aiding the government of Egypt. Additional charges were added to that case in October. This new indictment on January 2nd accuses Mendez of accepting gifts in exchange for him making positive comments regarding the government of Qatar. Menendez made positive comments about Qatar in order to aid a New Jersey real estate developer who wanted to secure an investment from a Qatar sheikh. The developer in question is Fred Dives, who has been charged as well. The allegations go back to 2021 when Menendez was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Qatar has been a long concern of U.S. and European nations in terms of influence operations. In 2022, a European Parliament official was charged in relation to Qatari bribes investigations. Qatar has also been accused of bribing FIFA officials to hold the 2022 World Cup, which Menendez attended and Dives may have well attended because he was in Qatar at the time. Additionally, retired Marine Corps General John R. Allen was investigated for secretly lobbying on behalf of Qatar last year. He was not charged in that investigation. In June 2021, Menendez reportedly introduced Mr. Dives to a wealthy investor that is a member of the Qatari royal family. While the deal between the two parties was being hammered out, the senator made several public positive statements regarding the Qatari government. Menendez also provided Dives with these statements so he could share them with the investor and the Qatari government. In September of 21, Menendez and Danes went to a private event in Manhattan that was held by the Qatari government. A few days later, Dives sent Menendez pictures of watches ranging in price from $9,900 to $23,900 with the caption, quote, how about one of these, end quote. Days later, the two talked about a Senate resolution supporting Qatar at a different time after a letter of intent was signed between Dives and the Qatari investor. Dives met with Menendez and his wife for dinner hours after that dinner. Menendez searched on Google, quote, one kilo gold price, end quote. The senator is accused of accepting cash, gold bars, a designer watch, and Formula One tickets for a relative. But that is all I have for you guys right now. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We are also on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again, Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Substack. You can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well, and I will see you guys soon.